welcome back. It's playoffs time here in the AUDL. We've built all season for this moment. The first round of the 2023 postseason begins on Saturday night. All four divisions will be active and live on AUDL TV. I am Adam Ruffner. That is Daniel Cohen. This is a preview episode previewing the first four games on the playoff schedule. We are elated to be here with you. It has been a barn burner of a season and the action is just only going to heat up further. There are some very intriguing matchups across the board in the Central, East, South and West divisions on Saturday night. And we're here to run you through the matchups. Of course, starting off in the East division with Boston 7-5 and five, visiting DC 9-3. and three. DC sweeping the season series 2-0. Most recently they won 22 to 15 on July 8th in Boston. And before that, 20 to 16 in DC. The Breeze defense has held Boston to just 31 goals in two meetings so far this season. Boston, going into this matchup, though, has renewed their identity this season on both sides of the disc. Their offense and defense are playing at elevated levels this franchise has not seen before. And that is why they're in their first playoff appearance. But Owing to that, Boston has yet to really prove itself in big game situations. They have yet to really beat a New York or D.C. in any regular season going back to their establishment in the 2021 season. So Boston will be looking to kind of define a franchise with this win. And for D.C., it's all about building towards their first championship weekend appearance. Of course, they've been thwarted two of the past three postseasons by their arch nemesis in New York. They host a playoff game. They presume to be the favorites to meet the Empire in the East Division Championship game, but they have to take on this hard-charging Boston team, even though they've won twice so far this season. DC just has that confidence, right? They added all these great new pieces over the offseason. All of them have excelled so far this season. Thomas Edmonds, Benjamin Ort, Andrew Roy, Cole Jurek. All their new pieces have just been excelling throughout the 2023 season up in DC. But... Throughout the season, we have also seen the Breeze kind of take their foot off the accelerator at times. This is one of the most talented teams. They've stood toe-to-toe with the Empire on numerous occasions the past couple of seasons. And yet, despite some very good fourth quarter play, there are times in which the Breeze can relax a little bit and allow their opponents to catch up. Now, they have some very impressive closeout wins so far this season, but they will need another one against Boston, who has clearly shown that they have a resiliency over past years. Daniel, what do you like going into this East Division matchup for Boston? How do you think that they can win this game? And then we'll get into how do we think the Breeze can take care of this matchup at home at Carlini Field? Yeah, so for Boston, I mean, they've been on a a recent tear in terms of efficiency. They had nine turnovers against Toronto, nine turnovers against Philly, 16 turnovers against DC, and then just three last weekend in, in the, the one-half game they played against Montreal. So aside from just like an overall efficiency standpoint, I, I look at their D-line conversion rate specifically. The past two games against D.C., they've converted like 30% of their defensive possessions, which is a lot lower than their season average for this year. So I look at guys like Tyler Chan and Rocco Linehan and the ability to lead that D-line after turnovers because D.C., We know they're not giving the disc away that easily on offense. They've been converting like crazy as well. So it's really going to put an added emphasis on that D-line conversion rate, really for both teams, the way they've been playing. So I'm definitely looking at that as kind of the, the margin for Boston to win this game. Yeah, and I think it's just showing that they can be doing what they've been doing the past several weeks on the road in D.C. They kind of showed it a few weeks back in the game of the week. They ended up losing that by seven goals by the end, but there were the first two, two and a half quarters where that glory offense was really staying neck and neck with the execution of the breeze. It's just going to be the battle of how long can they sustain for four quarters against a D.C. team that has shown it really can apply pressure in that fourth and final quarter. It's sort of the medal that I think they wear through all their tests against the empire over the seasons where the New York has shown again and again to be the best closeout team this league has ever seen. And DC has sort of started to wear that shine a bit, right? Like they have shown that at the end of games, they just have a finishing ability above and beyond what their competition is usually capable of. And I think that that is something Boston has to be wary of. Can they actually survive 
coasting behind DC into the second half? Or do they kind of need to take an early lead and make DC play catch up a bit? I don't think anyone but New York and Carolina this season has shown that they can take a definitive lead on the breeze. So that is going to be a huge question mark for the glory. But I think it's kind of necessary because otherwise DC can just continue to throw line after line of defensive pressure. They've shown an ability all season to execute, especially in transition. Alexander Fall has been a human highlight reel over and over and again the past month in particular. He leads one of the strongest takeaway units in the league. It's just going to be a really big challenge for a Boston team that has grown a lot, but is also going to be integrating some pieces this weekend that they haven't necessarily been playing of late with. I'm talking about, in particular, Orion Cable, Cole Davis-Brandon, even Kalen McSweeney, all of whom were inactive this past weekend against Montreal, obviously. Glory offense showing that they could take care of business without them, but there is going to be some, you know, juggling and roster adjustments as this team has been Mm -hmm. playing without those three all available at the same time for the past month. So Glory have, to your point, been executing at a higher level than ever. Can they sort of absorb and continue at their pace with these more notable, maybe more disc possessive stars in their lineup, right? Right. And the Orion Cable, I know you've talked about his his presence in the past. I think you did go public with your your Orion Cable take, right? <laughs> I did. Uh, I did. You know, I think I think so much of like the Boston offense we saw in the past where it was just like Willie Stewart, Ben Sadoke chucking up shots downfield, a lot of that might have been due to the presence of big receivers like Cable and just the the confidence in those guys to come down with the disc, but because they haven't had him for so much of the season, they have. It has been a lot more like in rhythm hucks, like line drive, power position type, like opportune deep hucking opportunities. So I, I feel like the cable presence, like obviously Boston knows how to play without him. So then, like, how do things shift when he's brought back in? Like, can he just kind of be a cog in their very talented system of cutters, or are things going to kind of gravitate? towards him because he is he is a big presence out there to put it lightly yeah and again like referencing back to what i said before there is no question as to this man's talent he's bringing a gold medal back to this team he is an unstoppable force in single coverage much much of the time however boston simply has looked better without him of late the carapella and tetra led cutting core has forced the throwers into slightly different variations and it's just been more successful without cable it seemed like when Cable was in the lineup, to your point of they would just throw more jump balls. There was more, I think, opportunity for then defenses to play help defense or simply right. expect the kind of looks to Cable in single coverage and to know to clamp down and shut down elsewhere and maybe even encourage that kind of single dimension attack. In lieu of Cable not being in the lineup, it's just looks so much more dynamic for Boston, I think. I think you see a lot more variation in their point of attack. I think you see a lot more engagement from their backfield too, and just sort of propelling the motion downfield. I mean, McSweeney, Davis Brand, Sundy, Rocco Linehan, Ben Sadok, kind of anyone who rotates into their throwing roles in the backfield, I think has a lot of freedom to cycle elsewhere. And I think that that's just come about simply forming this offense without cable available. And it'll be to your point, really, really intriguing to see how he plays against DC if they are going to maybe use some of his height advantage against a DC team that will be lacking some of its bigger defenders. You know, David Cranston will not be available. Uh, Jasper Tom, Troy Holland also out. Cole Jurek is questionable. He's recovering from a foot injury. He actually has a higher completion percentage this year than Andrew Roy, who has been arguably and maybe most definitively the most precise passer in the league this year. Cole Jurek has struggled on and off with his foot injury all season, so it's kept him out of the lineup. But when he's been in, he's been one of their best executors on offense. He might not be ready to go. Also, Tyler Monroe is listed as questionable. So there are points for Boston to attack, and it will be interesting mm-hmm. to see if they go towards exploiting a Cranstonless DC defensive lineup. I think that DC has the pieces to adjust. They've shown that all season, but... A receiver the size of Cable certainly commands a certain sort of defender, and maybe the Breeze don't necessarily have that available for every single shot that Glory decide to take in Cable's direction. We shall see. But um, maybe pivoting over a little bit from Boston into D.C. Again, this is a team with some of the most confidence, some of the most throwing skills in the entire league. 
but they have a tendency to sometimes, as we say, take the foot off the gas pedal, just have lapses. Is there a possibility for DC to have that come up at the wrong time against the surging Boston team? Or do you kind of expect DC to hold to the hype that we've been building around them all season, the clear talent level that this Breeze team possesses? Do you think DC just takes care of business on home and sets up a much anticipated rematch of last season's East Division Championship game? I I think that is what happens. Like I, I'm not I'm not really doubting DC's ability to play a, a more or less complete game. I mean, yeah, maybe it's not four quarters of like the most consistent ultimate that we've seen they can play at, but they've also been a team that has kind of been peaking as the season's gone on, very similarly to Boston. Those guys just are getting better and better and more comfortable with each other. DC's been converting 70% on offense over the last last three games, and those games have been against Boston, Philly, Toronto, like all the teams that were kind of on their heels looking to get in the playoff race. Uh, and then defensively, they're converting on 60% in those same games. So if they're if they're hovering at that like 60% plus conversion rate on both sides of the disc, which even with those absences, you never really doubt either unit just because they go 10 plus deep offensively. I I'm not really doubting DC's ability. I do think if they if they do show some inconsistency, maybe it is early in this game, but I I'm pretty confident like they they are a team we've seen close the door on teams in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter. It was funny when you brought that up with Boston, I was thinking even with the Philly game that that was like their biggest win of the se- the season, that wasn't really them like closing the door on Philly in the fourth quarter. It was just like there wasn't enough time really for Philly to come all the way back, but it was just Philly slowly chipping away at that lead. So I, I feel like DC, we've definitely seen close the door on teams. So I'm pretty confident they they can do the same at home against Boston. They also have like the playoff experience at this point. This is Boston's first ever playoff game. So I do think there's something to that as well. Yeah. I, 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 I trust like just in my kind of gut read DC to take care of business. But I do think that Boston presents one of the more interesting upstarts in this first round schedule, right? I, I really do see Glory yeah. being a peaking team and kind of a team too with a, sure, they haven't been there before, but they might be so inexperienced and young to not know any better and knock off what we consider to be a top two or three team in this league in the DC breeze, sure. you know, of, of all the teams that kind of have that audacity, Glory seems to be it. And I, I, despite not necessarily having the closest results, they do have, I think, personnel to challenge DC. Again, you highlighted uh, Tyler Channing, your players to watch. I absolutely think his veteran presence can be a, a difference maker for Boston on the road. I think you also talk about, again, like Orion Cable, Ray Tetro, the rookie Simon Carapella, who is currently mm-hmm. tied for second in the league for most goals in his rookie season. He has been electric for them all season. Maybe he finds a favorable matchup against DC with a couple more players available from when they matched up a few weeks ago. I'm just saying I I, I like the breeze, but I like this matchup. I think just overall as an intriguing uh, appetizer for whoever advances to face New York in the East Division Championship game. I think that these have clearly sure. been the best teams from week one. You know, Boston got off to that great start. They had their trip up in the middle of the season, but I think how they finished really kind of confirmed their appearance in the postseason this year. They really took care of business in the back half of their schedule. And then DC, you know, we've talked a few times about the breeze, maybe not quite meeting some of the hype that we have internally or or what we had heading into the season as far as expectations. I think given some of the signings, we're just expecting them to blow at everyone by six goals in the start of the second quarter. And that would kind of just be the, the rote script week after week as DC waited for their tests against New York. But to your point just a minute ago, you know, these other teams that were challenging for the third spot in the East were continually setting up the Breeze as kind of this test of metal performance. Hey, if we can beat the Breeze, we can stick. And each time the Breeze just put down those opponents. There was no real question by the end of those games as to who stood when the dust cleared. And I think that that is a testament to the Breeze. Maybe there isn't kind of the the overall crushing winning aesthetic that we had sort of wanted from this breeze team in the same way that New York just sort of dominates over its competition. But I definitely think that there is a resiliency and a talent level to this breeze team that has exceeded prior seasons. Like I do feel like 
and, and especially after this first round matchup that should they advance to face New York, this will be the kind of culmination of multiple seasons of Breeze and everything. And, and again, shout right. out, you know, this is the last season of famed head coach Daryl Stanley. I was going to say, extra motivation. There's a little bit of extra magic, I think. You could really kind of sense their coach. They, they did the big, uh, you know, plaque and, and kind of commemorative event at their home finale last weekend. Obviously, Stanley deserves that sort of attention. But I think you could just see a little bit of that pride uh, infuse the players. You know, it, it, it becomes a little rote and trite to just kind of paint things in broad strokes sometimes as far as, him being such a team leader, him being uh, such an important part of the community, you know, these become, I think, kind of cliches at a certain point, but there is no one that has been more of that for a particular community than what Daryl Stanley has meant to the DMV and particularly the, de the development of a team that has always straddled, I think, a veteran and youth divide, maybe better than any in the league. You know, you talk about yeah team that gets its young players reps and everything i mean dc has been doing that i think better than anyone for years and you see the fruits of their labor now as they become one of these kind of blue blood organizations this is a team that existed behind toronto as kind of the two or three depending on how good new york was in a given year yeah. back when stanley took it over and so just kind of hats off to him and just kind of putting a little extra cherry on top as far as what might be motivating dc you know you talk about again Boston being, I think, a really good competitor, but maybe there isn't just enough juice to go up against the Breeze team that's starting to feel like they get a couple more, you know, solutions in there. This is this is kind of becoming maybe a bit of a team of destiny, depending on how they shape up against New York. We'll see. There's a few of those this year, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Um, we should move on from the East. We should move on from the East, get to the Central. Six and six Chicago visiting at Indianapolis. Nine and three Indy will be playing outdoors for this matchup. The same venue that they played Pittsburgh at two weeks ago. Indy, like DC, swept the season series against Chicago. They got their first win of the season on May 13th at Chicago, 19 to 16. And then they took care of business, excuse me, at home, 26 to 17 at the beginning of June against the Union. The Union have undergone a complete midseason transformation of their roster and lineup. This will be an entirely new offensive system than what we were seeing even just a few weeks ago. They will be down many starters, including Ross Barker, Christian Johnson, Paul Arters, et cetera, et cetera. So Sam Kaminsky, Nico Lake, Andrew Shogren, they will be bootstrapping up a new O-line featuring some defensive converts and Ben Priest and Jay Steslicki at times. Again, the Union are just kind of rolling forward with this adaptability. They qualified for the playoffs and a little bit of a down year in the Central Division. The Union took care of business, but they got losses in each of their last two games. So a little bit of a backing into this postseason and just a general question of what the hell is this offense going to produce, right? Like <laughs> Union team enters the 2023 postseason as the worst executing O-line in the entire field and by a margin they're the lowest scoring team they're the least efficient there are just going to be a lot of questions against an indie team that as we said many times has one of the most established identities they are the most possession oriented team in the AUDL on either side of the disc they finished the regular season for the second straight year with the highest defensive conversion rate that is a league record no team has ever done that in back-to-back -back seasons so hats off to alley cats and on offense they are a very simple team. They have all but eliminated much of the long game from their attack. This is mm -hmm. a team that has attempted single-digit huck attempts in each of their last, like, eight games. They complete some of the fewest hucks in the league, which is a little surprising, I think, if you're a fan who has been following the Alley Cats for a number of years. This is a team who has really reined it in and learned to express itself through its attack, through dispossession, swinging the disc, and making that extra pass. However, Indy will be without one of its leaders in Travis Carpenter in this first round playoff game. They do return Xavier Payne and Keegan North who have been absent in some of their recent matchups. So there will still be more than enough throwing talent available for the home team Alley Cats. But there are just going to be a lot of questions for Indy as they transition from playing the first half of their season into the outdoors. And with that, just there being a little bit more of them focusing on possession and possibly playing into some of the strategy that Chicago is hoping to use 
in their new lineup formation. Chicago, of course, has struggled to score the disc all season. That probably will continue as they look to format a new offense. So they're going to be looking to keep the score low. Indy, sometimes because they are so huckaverse and because they are so concentrated on simply possessing the disc, making a swing and keeping the disc in their possession on offense, they can sometimes decrease the overall scoring potential in the game, which shrinks the margins. That is exactly what the Union are going to be trying to do in this round one game. So is Indy kind of playing into the hands of what Chicago might be trying to do on the road here? Daniel, I think you're in agreement with me. Indy stands as pretty uh, uh, obvious favorites entering this matchup. They won both games so far this season. They have so much more consistency. Chicago just littered with questions. However, again, the Alley Cats don't always like to open it up on offense these days. And so it could lead to the Union lingering around a little bit. And their defense, you know, for not getting the most of my opportunities for overgoing a whole bunch of overhauling during the offseason, for not having Nate Goff and a whole bunch of starters available. Jace Brunner, the captain, has played well. They do show a spark at times to take advantage of opportunities. Can Chicago keep this game? And, and can they possibly get the upset and advance to face Minnesota in the Central Division Championship game for the third straight year? Yeah, it's interesting. When you think about like what Chicago has to do to win this game, I feel like it's easy to just look at the offense and be like, okay, their offense just needs to play like anywhere close to where they've been the past couple of years, which we haven't seen in any game so far this season. But I almost look at the defense as like a more critical component for Chicago, which is interesting because they're shifting Steslicki and Priest. Priest has been playing offense, but yeah, like some of those early like D-line quarterback types are now playing on the O-line. But defensively, like they just need to, I'm, I'm almost looking at it from a coaching standpoint. They need to like, pull out all of their stops, all of their creative zone person looks, just like try to create mayhem out there because Indy is so possession oriented. If they can get some of those like backfield turnovers or like jump an underneath route and poach off their guys in a way that allow them to like ignite a quick break attack, like Dex Dremen has been fantastic at quarterback in this D line. I do think they're getting back, uh, Axel Agami, who to to mm-hmm. very early in the season was like kind of in that that prototypical D line QB mold alongside Priest and Seslicki. So like they will have opportunities. I, I just think they're gonna have to do something to like gum up Indy's attack because you know, as as up and down as this O line has been or mostly down, I like I don't see that changing this game. Although I will say they have like a pretty thrower heavy lineup offensively because it's Nico Lake, it's Kaminsky, Wyatt Meckler is a handler, and then you're moving over Steslicki and Priest. It's like it's a lot. It's going to be a lot of small ball and like throw and go heavy movement, which I do see some potential in. But I, all that said, I don't think the offense is going to be the reason that they would pull out the win. I think it would be defensively because honestly, their defense has been converting better than their offense has in pretty much every single game this season. I think season long, it's like, I don't know, 54% D line versus like 42% on the O line. So yeah, I, it's, it's weird to think that the defense would be the reason for them to win this game, considering they're shifting the pieces to help the offense. But that's, that's what I would point to. Yeah. And I'm not going to disagree with you. And I do think, you know, Brunner is obviously a player who I think will take advantage of some of the shorter mid-range passes that Indy likes to make. He's such a shark Mm -hmm. in those main opportunities and he's so quick and explosive in short spaces that I think he can be an obvious difference maker. He's got 15 blocks this season. He's really had an underrated second half and, you know, it wasn't so long ago that Chicago was in Minnesota against the windchill and they sprinted out to a 4-0 lead before the offense kind Gave the way, gave away the game to the Minnesota D line break train, but you know that was Brunner and that Chicago defense getting out early. And I don't know if Indy has the same capability to roll back and up over Chicago in the same way that Minnesota did with their yeah. defense break train. Obviously, Indy is phenomenally efficient in getting those break opportunities, but it's not exactly like they just roll them up in bunches. They're they're pretty. Right. 
select in earning break opportunities. The the rookies Will Quigley and Will Wet and Gel have been Wet and Gale, excuse me, have been amazing in 2023, no doubt. But aside from them, Alley Cat's still one of those teams that doesn't maybe generate the most amount of turnovers, and that's kind of why they founded this system of inefficiency on their D line counters because mm-hmm. they have to figure out a way to leverage what winning opportunities they do have, even if they don't necessarily have all the athletic pieces that just play shut down matchup defense at every single point. I think that they have been one of the best teams at sort of deploying different strategies. I remember when they were playing at Madison, they kept running that double team of Wettengale and Quigley, which is just 20 feet of arms and legs cinching around a a handler on a double team trap on the sideline. And Mm-hmm. I really like those kinds of looks and, and trappings that, that Indy runs out on teams. And it's sort of, I think what you were even saying about Chicago should mirror, there should just be kind of a never ending uh, evolving set of coverages from the union to kind of flummox what right. Indy is trying to do. Cause if you just let Indy settle in and possess the disc and kind of work through their, their routes and progressions, that's exactly what the alley cats have been really, really good at this season. And in fact, I think that's kind of almost what set up Madison for a little bit of failure in both of their games is that the zone kind of worked counterintuitively and maybe gave a few too many touches to all of those throwers on the alley cat. So maybe that's something where you want to get them a few less touches simply to not allow them to get into rhythm in this game. But again, we've always said it. This is why we're behind microphones, not carrying clipboards on the sideline. We are not coaches. We are just admirers. (laughs) So Indy still feels like the heavy favorite. Chicago, it feels like if they get some yeah. kind of defensive presence, is there any hope for Chicago's O-line? Like, how do you see them having success in this game given their almost complete lack of reps? I mean, this is an offense that kind of got instituted even midway through their last matchup at Madison, and the result of that was radicals running rampant with breaks in the second half. I know you say that there's a lot of throwers on this offense, but – in the limited data that we have so far, that looked like a very constricted field on which defenders could blitz into available spaces to create turns. I think Madison continued to run sideline traps and let the union try to throw over the top and simply had offside defenders helping and swatting the disc down. And then they're off in numbers yeah. in the opposite way. And, you know, just kind of talking through this out loud too, there, there are advantages to having throwers on an offensive unit. And I don't want to make complete generalizations here, but sometimes throwers aren't also the most athletic individuals in coverage off of turnovers. And I think you saw a little bit of that against Madison where the radicals were simply able to run following a Chicago mistake and take advantage of speed and space in a way that Chicago just wasn't able to recover from as quickly. And I worry a little bit about that with the alley cats because their break conversions are so good at kind of running with numbers when they are available and taking advantage of those mismatches and transitions. So it'll be interesting to see if in the past, you know, 10 days or so, if Chicago has maybe buttoned up a little bit or not 10 days, sorry, that was last Friday. <laughs> Feels yeah. like a lot longer ago, but hopefully within that span, Chicago has kind of figured out a few of those bumps in the road. It's it's just so different than what we thought coming into the season, right? Like we were thinking, okay, it'd be Shanahan, Arders, you know, Shogren, Barker, kind of like propelling the offense forward from like a downfield continuation thrower vibe. But at this point, like they don't have any real like downfield threats besides Andrew Shogren. Like you can't just have one go-to cutter on the line. So yeah, I mean, I worry about their ability to stretch the field. I worry about like kind of the, the overall connectedness of the offense when you don't have like a core of four cutters that can continue moving the disc. Um, Yeah. Like, so I, I guess I, I see the benefit in the throwers, particularly in the red zone. Like I think the, the Steslicki priest, you know, Lake Meckler, like the throw and go stuff they can run in the red zone in particular is really nice to watch a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, I think like working up the length of the field could be an issue for them and just the the lack of reps this crew has had together it's just a tough spot to be in like yeah you saw so many of those like crossfield hammers just being bad throws and like easily deflected by the madison defense and then the madison defense just gets off running right out of those traps and i i just think that's something that like 
you need practice and reps to get good at getting out of those spots. And I, I just don't have a lot of trust in the Chicago offense to overcome, you know, like de- different defensive looks that Indy might throw. Right. And not to say that like the central defensive meta is so much different than everywhere else, but I will say as far as like learned uh, sort of situations you have to have underneath of your belt going up against central division defenses, you can't just run out relatively new units and expecting a whole bunch of success because most of those defenses have a variety of variations that they can throw at you, even as far as zone looks, trap looks, and kind of present to you Uh, again, a variety of options for your brain to have to process in real time. And if you simply don't have the muscle memory, you're going to be making hesitations that those defensive coverages will take advantage of. And I think that you saw that against Madison. It's not to say, like, to your point that these are throwers lacking in any kind of skill. They just simply have not played as that variation of that unit. And so those little bit of pump fake hesitations, that couple extra seconds holding the disc, that adds up in huge ways for defensive coverage. It's also it's also worth mentioning that like it's been Pavel for the past five years that's been picking up the disc repeatedly on those sideline situations. So even when it's like Kaminsky, like yeah, he's been doing it this season, but still like grand scheme of things, there's just a lack of experience on this offense still. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've lacked that kind of true pivot handler that has been the cornerstone of their franchise the past five seasons. He's out west still competing in the playoffs himself. We'll get to the West division in just a moment, but let's stop first at the South division matchup between the seven and five Carolina Flyers, who just played on Tuesday in a warm-up against another Texas opponent from Dallas, but they will travel to Austin on Saturday night to face a nine and three Austin soul. Austin will be near full strength. Carolina will be down Liam Searles, Bowes and Matthew Johannes, both of whom have missed significant portion of the second half of the season. The Flyers have not played much since the beginning of July. However, they do hold the 2-0 season series advantage over the Soul. They also beat this Austin team in last year's South Division Championship game. So Flyers, despite trailing a couple games in the standings, definitely having the confidence edge entering this first round South Division matchup. And for Austin, despite their nine wins, they have yet to beat a team with a winning record in 2023. And they just look like a categorically different team than I think who we expected them to be heading into the season and the kind of high they were coming off of last year with quality wins against the Flyers, with a quality win against Atlanta, with those strong competition games against top interdivisional opponents. This season's sole team, as you were just saying about Chicago a second ago, the defense has largely out-executed the sole offense over and again this year for as talented mm-hmm. and as many highlight playmakers as Austin has available on the offensive side of the disc. They just have not had any kind of consistency this year. And on the defense, it's been again and again, these 10 plus break score barrages on opponents, particularly from Houston and Dallas. They have led the league this year in break scores per game average. Joey Wiley having a career year, but up and down that roster, Matt Armour, uh, I'm going to be forgetting names. Mick Walter, of course, uh, just everyone it feels like is having a banner year. Elliot Moore uh, on the counterattack for the soul. Speaking of a team that loves to get out and transition quickly, I don't know if there's a team that attacks more off of a turnover than the soul. Carolina, though, they've had their ups and downs. They've had so many different variations on lineups. This is despite uh, lacking their hyphenated stars and Searles Bowes and Gucho Hannes, They still have one of their strongest lineups of the season. It is much stronger than the one they traveled to Atlanta with last weekend or the one they played on Tuesday against Dallas. Joe White will be active, a player you highlighted in your Players to Watch article. Also, Alex Davis returns after missing some time. Uh, Mm -hmm. Jacob Fairfax is coming off of a phenomenal set of games. This is still a Carolina team that is not so far removed from their 2021 championship, particularly in just their roster formation and talent level. And yet this South Division slate before it reaches the championship game which atlanta will be hosting these two teams have flown underneath expectations so far this year you know carolina got that huge win in week six at dc kind of their defining moment of the season and really what kind of clinched their playoff appearance i think this year and then since that moment it's kind of been a little bit of backing in right like they've taken care of business and they've had to 
but they lost at Philly. They lose a couple times to Atlanta. They lose that season series 3-1 and kind of a lot of, I think, the momentum that they've built over the past several seasons against the hustle. They've, they've obviously taken care of business in the two matchups they've had so far this year with the Soul, but we don't necessarily know what to expect from the Flyers. This is still one of the most eminently talented teams, and yet with their roster inconsistency, there's still just questions as to what's going to happen against the Soul, and particularly against the Soul team that can be dynamic in converting break scores if Carolina does happen to get a bit sloppy, as they did in their matchup at Austin, you know, Carolina, I think, held almost a wire-to-wire win in that, but the Fly or the Soul were able to battle back continually because Carolina had 20-plus turnovers and were a little bit carousel mistaken. It felt like an environment that the Soul could be prosperous in. Now, Austin didn't end up winning that game. They lost 22-20. to But what, what are you kind of expecting from this matchup, I guess? Like, where do you see both of these teams playing? It feels like we haven't gotten a clear-eyed look at either the Flyers or the Soul really in 2023 much. So what do they have going into their biggest game of the season for both franchises? Yeah, both teams are in super interesting spots. Just from an an efficiency standpoint, Carolina's had four games this year where they've had 20-plus turnovers, which was something that was like unheard of for the past two seasons before that. I think they had one last year, maybe were flawless in their championship run in 2021. Uh, so yeah, I think the, the biggest question with Carolina to me is just, yeah, that, that lineup consistency and also the Joe White effect. Obviously that DC game stands out because it was a big win, but it was also like one of the biggest individual performances we've seen in the entire league this year. Joe White had nearly 800 yards of offense, 13 scores. Like, are we going to get that Joe White or are we going to get a Joe White who we saw with Chicago in the championship game against New York last year, where it was like couple throwaways a drop and just like some some I part of that was the usage too like it was just some like spotty usage some on offense some on defense like there wasn't there's not an identity being built around Joe White so it's it's just like hard to know what to make of the Flyers team and when you have a guy like White Elijah Long and Saul Yannick all playing offense together presumably I mean we don't know exactly what they're going to do with their rotations but that's like a lot of kind of aggressive throwing playmakers and like is it too much of that like Saul Yannick had eight assists last time they went to Austin but he also had six throwaways that game so he's been a little bit up and down this season I, I really think that Gucho Hanna's absence is huge also Liam Searles-Bose has been great when he's played but Gucho Hanna's has been like a staple for the franchise over the past couple of seasons and obviously like the way he has helped form the identity of that offense and just being a rock in that backfield alongside Yannick there's just been a lot more instability this year. So with Carolina, like to me, if their offense is clicking, then they'll win this game. If Joe White has one of his good games, they'll win this game. But if it's, again, one of those like 20 plus turnovers, a little weird sloppiness, I agree with you. Like Austin's D-line is is not to be messed with. Like that is a D-line that can go on runs. And I think we saw that some in their game against Carolina, the one that they won last year both offensively and defensively they were kind of just making more plays than carolina so it's super interesting because i think austin is the one team that we have the biggest question mark on right now given that they've only played three really good opponents this year right or three really good games two against carolina one against atlanta and then i also wonder like do you think austin's numbers like i know their offense hasn't been that efficient but is part of that just the fact that they were playing Dallas and Houston and maybe like whatever wind wise or weather wise or maybe just like mentality wise they knew that they could kind of get away with playing looser like do they have it in them to turn it on for a game that really matters like this one had there been any sign of it before now in the other 12 tests they faced this season? Sure, but there's no data for that, right? And this isn't some right. team that's shown it wins the big games through a set of years. You know, if DC or Carolina does something like that, sure, absolutely. I will grant it to them that they have a little bit of an ability to engage a button or a switch or however you want to kind of phrase it to kickstart into that higher gear now that the yeah. playoffs are here. but. I don't know if I buy that for a team like Austin that is still fighting so much for its respectability in this division. You know, if 
Carolina was having a down year this year, it kind of stood given how the results were last year that Austin might be the team to sort of take over the division lead. That's not what happened. They're now still stuck in that, you know, second spot in the South. And so they need to go out there and, and prove it. You know, this is a big prove it game for Austin and they haven't shown much of anything this year. They're phenomenally right. talented on both sides of the disc. I think we entered this year talking about them being a possible championship dark horse as far as their, you know, talent ceiling possibilities. And it's just been nowhere near that. I do think that the amount of defensive break opportunities certainly disrupts the ability to foment offensive chemistry. Sure. But I don't think that that's the total cause there. You know, I, I think right. that there's a lot other focus issues and just adaptation stuff from losing some of the pieces that they had last year and integrating some of the newer pieces this year. There's just been a clear stylistic change and just how they kind of attack the field. It felt like 2022 Soul employed seven throwers at any given time on their offense and were able to just spread attack and engage vertically. This year, it feels a little bit more like go big or go home. Austin Ball has returned to the yeah. where it's four vertical routes and hoping someone gets open in kind of their individual matchup. But there isn't so much of the, I think, chemistry is that was shown last year. It's a lot more of Fitzgerald and Radak quarterbacking in the backfield looking for someone to get open. It feels a lot less of Henke having those heavy distribution games from that kind of midfield shooter role. So we'll see right. if maybe Soul kind of change back to that as they face a more familiar and higher level opponent in Carolina. I think they have but, to. I think they like, have to. I think that's like, how they I win. Know, I haven't, again, like, I don't think that this is the right opponent to do that against, right? Like, Carolina is a is a true warrior kind of matchup. Like, they are a real deal championship level threat. And I just don't know that you can say, like, all right, this is the game where we play the game that we've sort of been pursuing all season. Like, the Flyers are going to throw some curveballs. They're going to make you play a slight variation on what you like to, and you're going to have to roll with it a little bit. I think last year, Austin did a great job of that in the playoff game. You know, Carolina sort of forced them into, hey, you got to go long and make big plays. And Evan Swiatek and Kyle Henke kind of responded with, oh, okay, we'll yeah, do that. You know, yeah. Austin made a series of highlight plays in that playoff matchup in 2022. It feels like they're still making all those highlight plays, but it feels like that's kind of the extent of what their offense has been doing. Like there isn't more of those possession-based drives. There isn't more of right. spreading seven on the field and working it. You know, it's it's such a dissimilarity to say like a DC or an indie style offense to watch right, the 2023 right, right. Austin Soul. Yeah, I I just feel like the best version of Austin's offense as it's been the past few years is when they can string together those like like seven to ten throw drives where they're just getting like a few 10 to 15 yard chunk gains and just like kind of a, a seamless cutting chemistry down the field rather than just like I feel like they just take unnecessary shots too much like it's it's Radek getting too excited it's Mark Evans pulling the trigger when he doesn't need to and there's a game I think it was it was against Carolina yeah, it was that first game against Carolina. They played in Carolina. They had a few points where Carolina also hucks it a ton. I think Austin is, I believe, sixth in the league in hucks per game. Uh, Carolina's fifth. There was one possession where both teams were just, like, chucking it back and forth and turning the disc over, like, a few times each. And it's just, like, you don't need to do that, especially if Carolina gets sucked into that mentality. Like, with their big throwers that they have, if they're gifting you the disc, just, like... Just be patient, man. I, I just want some more patience from Austin. Don't get too excited when you get possessions. That's my advice. <laughs> I'm glad you're giving advice heading into the playoffs. It's my coaching, my coaching yeah. angle. Just don't get too Daniel's excited. Daniel's advice column, Daniel's advice corner for the playoffs particularly. Yeah. No, that'll work out. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I totally agree. I, I think that Austin certainly has the ability. It's just that that's all it's been is this theoretical notion. Right, and, right. Yeah. And it's I think at least we Carolina, <laughs> for their inconsistencies, we've seen the top end. Like we've seen, we have the DC game. Even against Philly, like they were playing well. Philly just kind of had the inspiration of seeking a franchise defining win at home yeah. when they had the available opportunity. And like, much like Austin did last year against Carolina on the road, 
Philly seized it. And I think that that's more of a credit to the Phoenix. It wasn't necessarily like Carolina played a bad game when they yeah. went to Philadelphia, you know. And, I agree. But, you know, I, one last point I wanted to make about Carolina, and you you touched on it. I don't think that there's been any greater of a correlation between the single player's impact and the output of their team than the absences of Gucho Hannes this year and the way in which those 20 turnover plus games are suddenly com- becoming a lot more common for Carolina. You know, we yeah. talk about what are instrumental pieces and in kind of constructing a team. And I think far too often we don't give enough credence to the the level of pivot handlers and particularly a Gucho Hannes who simply goes back there and completes every single damn pass at a 98% clip for the past two plus seasons. When you have that kind of reliable turret in your backfield, you can just sort of build everything off of it. And you see the way in which they know and that QB1 will not be possessed and it gives everyone else in that Carolina offense more confidence in their throwing power and the kinds of looks they can take. Cause they know they can always reset it and get it back to Gucho Hannes who simply does the right thing almost at a computer level of processing. And I think that you see when he's not available, it just, it skews Carolina a bit. You can see it against Atlanta. They were just possessions as they went into overtime where it's like, he would be the one making a difference here. Like I reflect back on how he was when Carolina beat uh, Atlanta in Atlanta at the midseason point in 2022. He had like one of his best games of his career. I think he completed 82 of 82 throws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had one or game. two interceptions. It was just one of those games that reminds you like, sure, these aren't stat stuffing numbers. I think he finished with one or two assists, maybe a goal. But there was right. no doubt as to his effect on a game with that slim of margins. And you just see this year, there's a little bit more wavering. There's a little bit more we don't quite know exactly who to go to in this red zone scenario when, when it's MGH, it's, it's every other him, right? Or he's fullback diving into the end zone as a receiver and getting kind of one of those cute little chisel throws from uh, Saul Yannick or something. Like he's just yeah. so optimized in those small spaces and in clutch moments. It's been interesting to watch the Flyers try to evolve without that kind of central pillar that has been so important to 2021 championship season two last year where i think they had the one game above 20 turnovers otherwise i think everything yeah. else is like 18 or under but right should move on from south division let's move to the west division west. last but not least la versus colorado la of course winning a thriller last friday at home and getting some help from their socal rivals in san diego on exterminating the Spiders LA, now qualifying for the playoffs for the first time since 2019. The accomplishment has already been reached for the new regime under Pavel Giannis, Sean McDougall, and all the new pieces LA added over the offseason. Came a bit sooner, I think, than we even anticipated. There was a lot of hype, of course, around the Aviators, but they continue to fly higher and higher, but they will have a terrific test as they go to Colorado to face the 8-4 and four Summit. Summit, of course, losing four games this season, three of which by a single goal in the final moments. This is an absolute blue-blooded competitor, especially if you dig a little bit into the stats. Summit ranking as one of the two to three best defenses in the league across the board in numerous fields. Colorado has always played terrifically in front of their home crowd. They stand to have a sizable home field advantage against an L.A. team that definitely deserves to be here but needed a lot of help in order to actually make it into the postseason. L.A. has really ridden on top of their new star power. We've talked all season about the performances of Pavel Giannis and Sean McDougall playing like MVPs. Brandon Van Dusen also stepped up to that level seemingly this past weekend. It's just felt like everyone continues to play at an elevated level. The rookie, Lucas Ambrose, has been playing like the best dang defender in the entire AUDL in the back half of the season. He leads the league in takeaways. This is an L.A. team that has been getting the most out of the players it puts in its highest and most elevated positions. They will be trying to do that on the road, even though they only scored 29 goals in the first two matchups against Colorado this season. However, both of those matchups occurring in the beginning part of May it was a completely different kind of L.A. team at that point in the season. The Colorado and their strong defense certainly take advantage of the Aviators and getting wins in both of those games. 
but now the aviators come into this first round battle looking like a completely renewed team. I think the Summit are definitely up to understanding the new challenge that aviators possess after they last met on May 20th, over two months ago. So I think Colorado will be able to kind of absorb the new evolutions that LA has gone through. But for LA, is this maybe just too much too soon? Is this too strong of a competitor? There's a lot of angles going into this matchup. I mean, going into the season, Pablo Giannis about talked about LA being a particular thorn in Colorado's side. That has not been the case so far. The Summit stand to have a pretty sizable advantage going into this game, but the LA will be returning a couple notable playmakers in Daniel Brunker and Matt Miller, both of which who have missed numerous weeks of absences. Brunker played for Colorado last year during their championship weekend appearance. He has been a great and versatile two-way player. He was really starting to emerge as a central cog in this LA defensive lineup before he got injured. It will be interesting to see where he can come to inserting back into the lineup. Miller has been a spark plug on both lineups the past two seasons. What do you like about this matchup? Obviously, Colorado has a lot of defensive prowess going in. LA has, again, that star power and kind of the twin engines of McDougal and Giannis and even a third now in Van Dusen emerging on offense. Mm -hmm. Where where do you kind of go to in this West Division matchup? It was so defensively dominated at the beginning of the season, but given how the West has been playing out lately, I don't know if I trust that to be (laughs) where this game ends up. I think it's where Colorado wants. I think Colorado wants another, sure. you know, 35 or less combined scores. We just kind of put them on the mat and make them struggle through every offensive scenario. I just think LA might have enough confidence and weapons to be able to push a little bit against that. Yeah. I mean, those early games, that was like, it was back when we, we were talking about like the disconnectedness of the LA offense, where it was very oh, much God. like dominator set in the backfields, cutters downfields not really any connection in between. So like, that's the key for LA is to kind of like continue that trend that we've seen throughout the season. Like they looked so good just as a full unit in that last game against Oakland and kind of like evolved to that point throughout the season. But like, is it something Colorado just did defensively to them early on where Colorado's defense was able to create that separation in the offense? Like, do we see that come back? Or is this something that LA has just like, kind of crafted their new identity around and it's like a like a runaway train runaway train at this point when you have Sean McDougal playing the way he is. So I'm really interested just for that kind of contrast of storylines that I feel like has been developing especially with Colorado's defense like you know they'll have Kai Marshall, they'll have Said Semer in his back like this is a, a relatively full strength Colorado defense. I know they will be missing Matthew AG and Alex Tatum which are two tough losses but they have the defensive depth to, to kind of rotate guys around. And, and I, I do think that's going to be the biggest challenge for LA is just keeping the offensive mojo that they've been gaining throughout the season against a really good defense. And then kind of flipping it over to the other side, if there has been a question about this Colorado team, it's been on the offensive side of the disc. And in particular, Definitely. it's been around Jonathan Nethercutt, who will be absent from this playoff matchup. He has been questionable in some of his uh, activeness the past back half of the season and the offense will be moving forward without the 2017 MVP. He led the league in assists after I believe the first four or five weeks of the season Yeah, but he has clearly been absent from what the attack of the summit team is trying to accomplish and I think you saw in that New York game in particular Colorado's last matchup that they had sort of moved on from Nethercutt, who was so central to this team's offensive styles in their first season in 2022. And so it's been kind of this new and unforeseen adaptation for Colorado's offense. And they certainly have the talent to take advantage of that. They certainly have the system, I think, to put into place. But there's clearly some growing pains here, right? Like you could see it against New York in that fourth quarter where Colorado had a halftime lead. And they simply couldn't possess well enough in that fourth quarter to remain competitive against an empire defense that was looking to just close the dang thing out. And I think that Colorado, again, enters this L.A. matchup with a lot of favorable individual places where they can leverage their athletes. You talk about Quinn Finer, Calvin Soten, Danny Landisman, Alex Atkins. That might be 
the most talented foursome of athletic playmakers any offense in the league has, right? Like, other than the sort of quartet up in New York. I mean, up and coming, Colorado is it, right? Well, and, and I, those, those four, by the way, also Jay Fruit, Matt Jackson. Right? Pretty good. Pretty good, players. Put in. pretty good players. <laughs> yeah. It's like an all-hybrid line, right? Like, And I think that's that's kind of the the benefit you see in moving away from Nethercut is it, it feels like kind of a lot more flexibility is going to be there offensively. But yeah, I think that is definitely the biggest question, especially when like, yeah, early in the season, it was Nethercut. Then they had like the Nethercut, the, the famous and infamous Nethercut Spicer switch against Salt Lake. Like there's, we've been able to visibly see kind of the inconsistency of the offense and like is it going to be super alex atkins base is it going to be more of like a spread approach without one true quarterback i i really don't know what to expect i especially with landisman and stoughton coming back into the picture because it is funny though the one game they played together and the one game that we we kind of saw like the the current uh lineup for this weekend was their home game against oakland this year which just so happened to be their highest scoring game of the entire year they put up 27 at home against Oakland. So I don't know, I guess, yeah. How much confidence do you have in the Colorado offense, especially against an LA defense that I feel like has also kind of gained some mojo as the season has gone on? Yeah. I mean, I think the LA's defensive evolution, particularly without Matt Miller, uh, Daniel Brunker and Jason Valley available for much of the season is one of the more undertold storylines of this entire year. I mean, we've talked a bunch about Lucas Ambrose, but the veterans and Andrew Padula and Mitchell Steiner have been playing incredible coverage for them. They're getting a lot of, uh, I think, complimentary play from sort of the role players and depth rotation pieces. They have a lot of different coverages and good pullers that they can throw at people. You saw in the second half of that comeback win against Oakland that they were able to do some trap looks and just sort of stunt a little bit of the fast break flow that the Spiders like to get into on offense. You could see them Mm -hmm. stymieing some of that and making them take more... I think, disconnected looks from the backfield, downfield, into help defense. Of course, Lucas Ambrose coming away with that big support block in the closing moments of that game. That's kind of where my mind goes. Um, Yeah, I think there are ways in which the Aviators' defense can potentially take advantage, but I wouldn't quite say that the LA Aviators' defense is stout enough to prevent much of the damage of what Colorado is capable of doing. And you can see that even against Oakland. I mean... They allowed 23 goals, it was 24-23. Yeah. This wasn't yep. a low-scoring affair. It wasn't like the Aviators' defense really came out and stymied and shut down Oakland. I mean, the Spiders right. were rolling in the first half of that game, particularly with their huck looks. Yeah, Colorado, very much known for liking the long ball, and I think that they could very much be boosted by a huge home crowd. You saw it even against New York. They were not shy about taking advantage of the opportunities that they had and throwing the disound field. I mean, and again, in the similar formation of this lineup, you mentioned the game against Oakland. I also think about the second meeting against Salt Lake in Salt Lake when it was Stoughton and Atkins and Finer running much of that offense, and they were rolling against a very yeah. good straight defense for a lot of that game at elevation. It looked like it kind of caught up to them in the fourth quarter, but they did it again the next night in Oakland. So. I really like the speed of this Colorado offense. No surprise there. As you mentioned, it takes even like four or five players deep to get to Jay Fruit and Matt Jackson, some players yeah. who lack no foot speed whatsoever. <laughs> I just think there, there's sort of um, a, a pressure of verticality that Colorado could exert on LA that might be a little problematic for an Aviators team that might have played the kind of game of their season already last Friday. That's another worry that I have for the Aviators, that this might be a bit of a come down after the excitement of (laughs) Week 13 in the West Division. You know, I think that Aviators would definitely appreciate this matchup. There's a ton to learn from. They have so many inexperienced players getting some of their first playoff opportunities in the AUDL. That will be terrific. But on Colorado's side, the, the Summit are a team who expect to win a championship in 2023. And they, again, haven't really had that definitive closeout win against a good team. I mean, you could talk about that win against Oakland as being one of their most definitive wins of the season at the point. And that Spiders team didn't make the playoffs. So I kind of expect the Summit to come out and maybe do a little bit of a show of force against L.A. if the Aviators aren't careful in possessing the disc. I could really see 
this defense again playing i think a little bit less explosively in the open field with some of their block generating than they were in 2022 but all the more impressive and limiting some of the things that opposing offenses are trying to do i mean you talk about the first half that they played against the empire offense in week 12 that was some of the best defensive coverage we've seen against the empire and that was largely through just identifying good matchups and how they could start to disconnect some of the rhythm of new york's potent offense and i think that you're going to see something very similar against LA who loves similar to New York to run through their stars quite obviously. So be interesting to see Colorado's game planning. It'll be interesting to see LA's playmaking and execution, all four divisional matchups again, taking place on Saturday, July 29th live on ATL TV. Before we wrap up. Yeah. Can we go, can we go through the revenge game narratives for uh, LA and Colorado real quick? We got Daniel Brunker. Coming back for LA, playing against his former team. We got Danny Landisman playing for Colorado, playing against his dad, Jeff, who coaches LA. And then, uh, you know, Pavel is sort of like a pseudo revenge game just because of his Colorado ties. Uh, he went to school in Colorado, but uh, never played for the Summit, but did go to the, the first ever Summit tryout. We'll put an asterisk by Pavel. He likes to think he would make the team. There's no proof that he would make the Colorado. <laughs> we don't know. Fair. We don't know. He might, he, you yeah. know, maybe Colorado is tough love for Pavel. We'll see. We'll see that on Saturday <laughs> night as the summit get prepared to host LA. Again, all four divisions will be active on Saturday night in the opening round of the playoffs on AUDL TV. If you want to find additional coverage, you can go to the AUDL website or check in on the AUDL social media channels. That will do it for Daniel and I here today on preview episode but we will be back on sunday to do a full recap of the first round of the 2023 audl playoffs we thank you so much for joining us here and now we will be talking to you in just a short while stay tuned for a thrilling weekend of postseason action we can't wait we'll be watching alongside you see you soon bye now